BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 93 of the Bowery Boys, City Hall and City Hall Park. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Great to be back. It feels like we've been gone for ages, doesn't it? <laughs> well, we, you, you were a little sick there for last week, so we're, we're a little late in our show. In working order, yes. And in that time, we have a new mayor. Well, actually, we have the same old uh, mayor. Right. But I knew it was close. I didn't know it was that close. <laughs> Now he actually, Mayor Michael Bloomberg will be will begin his third term next year. He just got elected for that term last week. So this week's topic is actually the place in which he will be doing most of his business: City Hall and that patch of green right in front, City Hall Park. Really, the park and the area around it is almost just as interesting as City Hall itself. And did you realize it's not just one City Hall? New York has actually had three City Halls. Believe it or not, New York City Hall has gone from basically a glorified pub where people actually sat around and drank booze to a place that actually inspired one of New York's first real preservation battles with our dear friend Robert Moses. So all this and more. Wow, hitting all the favorite buttons tonight, aren't we, And Mr. Stuyvesant's here, too. So join us as we head for City Hall. Well, Tom, why don't you get us started with where in Manhattan City Hall is? We, Mm -hmm. of course, know that it's the center of New York City government. Where in the map, where in the world of Manhattan is it? City Hall itself is located inside City Hall Park, which is bordered by Broadway, Park Row and Center Street, and Chambers Street to the north. It's a rather triangular section of land. Now, the area is home around it to many government-related buildings. Local government buildings, state and federal buildings just abound. We can go into all of them later. There's actually so many buildings surrounding this that we have actually already talked about in prior podcasts. For instance, you have the Brooklyn Bridge to its east. You have the Woolworth Building to its west. Right. And as we've discussed, Park Row was also home to many newspapers in the period that we'll be talking about. Now it's home to J&R Music World. 
And behind much of the Civic Center is the old location of Collect Pond. And of course, that area became the Five Points Slum. And south of this district is, of course, Wall Street. We've talked about all of these places. It really was, it's really one of the most important areas of Manhattan. So that's where we are. We are in City Hall Park. Now, we're also talking, of course, about City Hall itself. The City Hall building is nearly 200 years old. It was built in 1811. And we will talk about the construction of that. It's the oldest city hall in the United States that maintains its offices of the mayor and the city council and is effectively all, the seat of power. They're all still there. Yes. However, Greg, this was not the original city hall. Oh, no. In fact, there were two other buildings that could officially be called city halls. Would you like to hear about them, Tom? Uh, yes, I that's why we're all here, isn't it? <laughs> well, to do so, we are going to have to wind the clock all the way to the beginning of New York City history at 1609, okay. where we're going to start, believe it or not. Of course, that was when Henry Hudson sailed into New York Harbor. Right, on the half moon. On the half moon. Um, the Dutch settled the tip of Manhattan. There were already settlers arriving here by 1624, with Fort Amsterdam being built in 1625. Now, there wasn't really much of a town, so they didn't have much of a need for a town hall. However, just a few years later, the director general of this new settlement of New Amsterdam, William Kieft, well, in 1641, he decided the town was big enough, they need to have a place where they can conduct some official town business. So he commissions the building of a two-story stone structure called the Staatsherberg. Stotterberg. Stotterberg. This would actually be today at 73 Pearl Street. Now, believe it or not, back then, this was right on the water. Like, it literally had a view over the East River. Mm. Now, Stotterberg is basically city tavern. Tavern? Believe it or not, the first place where they actually had governmental town business was in a tavern. It was an inn. It was a meeting hall. It was a place for social networking where you could literally go and drink alcohol. What I found was kind of clever of Kieft is actually during this time, the sale of liquor was prohibited everywhere but here at the tavern. So the city yeah, was making a little wise, yeah. a little coinage on the side. It was sure. good for city business in many ways, and probably if you got too drunk, they'd lock you up in the tavern. But, well, this is true frontier government, definitely. So in 1653 is when Peter Stuyvesant came to town to really kind of clean things up because it was a wild, unkempt settlement here. He started by renaming this dreadful little tavern the Stotts House or the first official city hall. Uh -huh. And so the actual government of New Amsterdam was settled here on the second floor of this building. As we know in our New York history stories, the Dutch were kicked out in 1664 and replaced by the British, uh, who then took over New York, calling it New York, of course. Did they get rid of the Stadthuis, or did they at least rename it? Well, believe it or not, throughout the 17th century, a government remained here in the Stadthaus. Throughout the years, though, uh, you know, from 1664 up to around 1700, I mean, this building has been around for a very long time. The city is growing. Uh, it was deteriorating by this time. It was falling apart. As a matter of fact, a lot of the important matters of government actually had to be moved on to other buildings. Perhaps it was time to move. So in the year 1700, one of the town leaders, one of the wealthier members of the colony, a man by the name of Abraham de Pizer, 
he donated some land that he had to build a brand new city hall for New York. Mm-hmm. How generous. Very generous. And put this in your hat, Tom. Guess where this is? It was built at Wall Street and Broad Street, where those are today. Mm. Now, it cost about 3,000 pounds to make. They actually used stones from the city wall that was actually being dismantled by this time. Uh So that Wall Street... That In fact, this was actually being built on. They literally used the wall stones to build this city hall. Now, inside this building, it was really multi-purpose. It was it had assembly halls. It was a common council. It's Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, in the basement, they actually had a dungeon where they would frequently throw people. Wow. And the name of this building was? This was an official city hall building for the city of New York. But again, City Hall at this point would have been reporting back to London, right? It didn't have a true autonomy. It was it was still beholden, of course, to the crown. In 1731, they brought something over that was so exotic, and, and it was stored here at City Hall. Can you possibly guess what that is? In 1731, 1731. New York receives its very first two fire engines. And they're stored Hmm. here at City Hall. So thus, it becomes... Why not? Everything else is there, It becomes basically the first fire station. Now we're out entering the 1750s, 1760s. There's a lot of unrest here in New York and, of course, in all of the colonies. In fact, in front of the the City Hall building, there would be a series of public whippings. In 1765, believe it or not, here at the City Hall was held the Stamp Act Congress, where delegates from nine of the different colonies here in the New World gather because they were all angered by the British because they had this audacity to charge a tax. So that particular gathering, the Stamp Act Congress, gathered here in 1765, and it gathered, Tom, in secret. In fact, there's only one copy of the meeting notes from this particular Congress. Well, it would obviously be a rather touchy matter to debate in public during British rule. In a British town in, in City the Bri- Hall. In the seat of government, <laughs> right. I mean, that's it's 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 pretty audacious. So, of course... Yeah, wasn't there a bar someplace they could meet in? <laughs> well, there were a few taverns, but I... Now, that was 1765, so we're now we're getting to the yeah, real heart of the, of the American Revolution, of course. In fact, in July of 1776, of course, Washington and the Continental Army were stationed here in New York City. So through six, 1776 and 1783, the British occupied New York in this during the dark period, during the American Revolution. As a matter of fact, City Hall became a pro-British center, obviously. They actually had signed a declaration of dependence here. Uh 200 British loyalists actually signed it here at the steps of City Hall. And there were probably lots of records of that signing. Yeah, (laughs) well, unfortunately for the British, there were. um, Because in 1783, of course, when they got booted out, the peace treaty that actually ended the the Revolutionary War was also read here from the steps of City Hall, and they didn't like it. They were booing and hissing and crying and screaming, but too bad, they got booted out. The local government then returns, of course, in December of 1783, the first real month without the British there. The City Hall would host local government, state government, and there would even be a school crammed in there as well. (laughs) Well, they had plenty of space. I mean, now that they kicked the British out, right? Maybe they got rid of a couple fire engines? They, They might have just thrown a couple or just given them one as a parting gift, maybe. 
However, the federal government decides, hey, you know what? We're going to move in too. There's you've got a you've got a, maybe some closet space or something. In 1785, the Continental Congress of the United States, the new United States, moves in for the very first time. There's so many things going on in the building that some of the functions actually had to be shipped out to a few other buildings, including France's Tavern, which is just down the way. The Department of War and the Department of Treasury for the United States moved into France's Tavern because there was just so much going on here at Federal Hall. From 1788 to 1790, then, this is the heart of U.S. government, and they call it for this period of time Federal Hall. Is this the same Federal Hall that sits on Wall Street today, the same structure? It is not the same structure. Okay. As a matter of fact, this building, this Federal Hall that I'm talking about now, would be torn down in the 19th century. The federal government was here from 1788 to 1790. Washington called his old friend Pierre L'Enfant, mm-hmm. happen to remember that name, to come in and sort of spruce up the building. It took him five months to re- refurbish the whole place, but... By the time he got done, it was sort of a model of the federal-style architecture. So they moved back in in 1789, had a few great months of federal government, and then decided (laughs) to move out to Philadelphia. Well, they had other business to attend to. The very first thing that they did when they moved in was to ratify George Washington as the president of the United States right here at Federal Hall. Also, the Bill of Rights was adopted here in 1790. They did move to Philadelphia in 1790. Local politics crawls back into Federal Hall, which is, of course, now just City Hall. So from 1790 and into a little bit of the new century, into the 19th century, local politics flourishes here. The city is growing so large by this time, of course. It's really no longer suitable to have a place of business like this that's kind of near wharfs and kind of near the merchants, of course, you know, mm. that are around here as well. So they decide that they need to build a bigger city hall on some parcel of land. They don't want to have to buy private land and like kick them off and pay them money and kick them off. They want to take some public land and mm-hmm. throw a city hall on top of it. So wouldn't you just know it, Greg, that if you just turn the corner, Wall Street, go up Broadway a couple blocks. Right. You would come to this big parcel of land that the city of New York owned, referred to as the Commons. So can you back us up here? I'm afraid we'll have to back up a little bit. Well, we don't have to go that far back. All right, we'll go back to the Dutch real quick. (laughs) But really quickly. Because this area is a very important parcel of land for New York. Right. So again, it's this area of land that is today bordered by Broadway to the west, Center Street, Park Row on the east, and Chamber Street at the north. Those weren't the names of the streets back in the Dutch days when it was really just that area was a sort of communal livestock area. So people could just let their animals graze. And it was, of course, at the northern extreme of the town, even sort of outside of New Amsterdam. There were windmills on the commons uh, constructed in the 1660s and 1690s. I have an old map of uh, New Amsterdam here. and you How amazing. So there were actual windmills. Yeah, you can see the common here. It comes down to a little point and then there's a windmill on on the eastern side at the base of the Brooklyn Bridge and on the western side as well and you can see collect pond up wow, there wow windmills they really were dutch truly a dutch treat <laughs> Now, the government didn't start using that land until the 1690s when they 
held an execution on the commons. Hmm. And because it was outside the center of the city, this was an area where city leaders felt that they could stick the undesirables of the city. So, say, the impoverished or the thieves or the prosecuted. It's kind of how the city would treat its islands later. Where they would yeah, I was having them. some flashbacks to Roosevelt Island here. Yeah, I mean, it, like, or Randall's Island. Or any, Randall's, Anything right. like this. Now, just imagine City Hall Park. Picture it in your mind right now. Today's City Hall Park. Because it's, a, same, yeah. it's the same triangle parcel triangle of land. land. right. Yes. In 1735, the first almshouse was built. It was a simple two-story building. There was a second almshouse that was built in 1796, and that was a long brick building. And that would actually survive for quite a while. So to get this straight in my head, while the city leaders, while the wealthy, while the powerful, yes. are down on Wall Street, a couple blocks the very same time, you have the undesirables, you have the poor and the needy, the sick up here in this area of land. Things hardly changed going into the 19th century. If you think of city hall, power, police, everybody right there, municipal workers, and right behind it, five points. Yeah, you're right. It just got pushed upward, didn't it? That second almshouse would replace the first, and it would function until 1816, shortly after the opening of City Hall, which we will talk about here so eventually. But it, so the almshouse was still open. Yes, for four years. When City Hall opened, the almshouse was right next to it. When they shut it down in 1816, it actually became a public building. It was used as a bank. It was used as the American Museum that we discussed mm-hmm. in the Barnum podcast right next to City Hall, and then it was used for municipal offices and even called the New City Hall, which has led to (laughs) no shortage of confusion in the research process. (laughs) Um, A soldier's barracks was constructed in 1757 on the site of today's Tweed Courthouse behind City Hall. And then in 1759, they constructed the first of two, quote, debtors' prisons. This one was called New Gowl. I was going to say it has a rich history, but with all the almshouses and debtors' oh, prisons, no. I don't think that really works. That's a poor joke. <laughs> uh, so, and then the, that was even too small, so they opened up another one called the Bridewell in 1775. And as if that wasn't enough, th- there were all kinds of protests and gatherings that were happening on the commons as well, because it was, after all... The commons. Well, it was a place for people it was to go. An, and it was an open area. Rant. It was for people to to riot and for, to strike if they needed to. In 1766 through 1770, in the lead up to the revolution, there were five, no less than five, liberty poles that were erected by the mm-hmm. Sons of Liberty here in the park. An important patriotic part of American history here. Unfortunately, for many of the revolutionaries. During the revolution, the British also threw these revolutionaries into the prisons. They were right there. The debtors' prisons became places to put war prisoners. And right behind it in 1784, after the war, the city of New York erected city gallows. And 250 prisoners are thought to have been executed. So there's a really dark side of American history here at City Hall Park. And so maybe this is why, actually, they decide, you know what, we want to build a a beautiful new building that reflects the future of the city. And we want to do it in this place where maybe we want to erase some of the past ghosts that are floating around here. 
So they decide to have this competition, the Common Council of, of New York, in 1802. The grand prize was $350 wow. to build this brand new city hall. They had 26 so total submissions from a lot of really well-known architects and designers. The winners were these two men by the name of Joseph Mangan and John McComb. Mr. McComb actually designed... Uh, several very notable buildings, including Hamilton Grange, uh -huh. a certain house of a man named Archibald Gracie, uh -huh. Gracie His mansion. mansion, and in fact, he also designed Castle Clinton, or helped had a hand in designing Castle Clinton. Construction started in 1803. There were immediately cost-cutting measures because it was a very ambitious plan. It was maybe seen as a touch too flamboyant. So what they did is the original plans, they cut the depth of the building and shortened it a little bit. And there was supposed to be a lot more marble that was to be used. Instead, they made the back of the building, they made it brownstone, and they put the marble in the front because the view was, well... It's so north of the city, no one's going to look at the north side. Ah. So they decide to just put that, make that side brownstone. I mean, no one's going to look there, right? No one's going to, there's going to develop any land over there. You may be wondering where is that brownstone today? In fact, almost 150 years later, they did go back and they covered it up with some granite and limestone. So ah. you don't see any brownstone anymore in it. Well, Mangan didn't like the fact that these his plans were being changed, so he quit the project. And Macomb basically is writing this whole thing himself. Lots of delays in the construction, but it was completed in 1811 and then dedicated in 1812. The design is this great mix of a federal style, which was very popular, of course, at this time, and a little a French Renaissance flair mm -hmm. was thrown into it, of course. It's a C-shaped building. Two stories at the time um, with a tiny little attic at the right. top. It was finished in 1812. I think find it very symbolic that it, was that it was finished there because this is around the same time as the commissioner's plan, which divides up Manhattan into all of those city blocks. So it's really tied into the future and prosperity of New York. As a matter of fact, the area around City Hall, when it, when it opens, it, all the property values immediately raise. Well, you can imagine, right, there'd be a significant shift when it goes from being a park that houses prisons and gallows to suddenly the seat of government. I mean, this place had debtors' prisons, and now in the 1820, you have all these beautiful row houses built up and down Broadway right in front of City Hall in the 1820s. In 1836, the Astor House, the most exclusive, the nicest hotel in New York, is built right across the street. You know, this really turned City Hall Park and the City Hall area into the whole nexus of New York culture. Mm. Now, during the early 19th century, some of the things that would come through here um, in 1824, the, the Marquis de Lafayette was feted with a party here at the brand new City Hall. A year later, the Erie Canal procession, the Erie Canal had just oh, been yeah. finished, berated right through town, ended right here at City Hall. So City Hall became at this point the place where processions would start or end, and a place where crowds would go to gather and celebrate. And not just processions and parades. The horse cars, like now transportation, would start here at City Hall, and they would have their routes that go all the way up, you know, into the nether regions up there in Harlem. Well, and it's still this way, Greg. I mean, last Friday, I'm perhaps dating the podcast, but last Friday, New York threw a ticker tape parade for the Yankees, who just won the World Series. We left the office just for a few minutes to go check out the ticker tape parade, but it did start at Battery Park and go up Broadway 
to City, City Hall. Hall. Um, in 1842, there, the very first fountain would be put in front of City Hall. They would actually draw waters from the brand new, newly built Croton Aqueduct. So you've painted this picture of this beautiful new building with a fountain, a park. My, how things have changed in, what, 75 years? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it is the most upscale neighborhood of almost of the entire eastern seaboard. Wow. Now... Remember that second almshouse we were talking about, the, yes. which which would be called the second city hall. Mm-hmm. Well, in 1854, when it was being used for public offices and for filing documents and such, fire swept through the building and engulfed it in flames and burned it to the ground, and, which turned into quite a spectacle. You, a, a smoldering building right sitting right next to city hall. It's sort of terrifying. And it wasn't replaced. However, just a couple years later, in 1858, in fact, on August 17th, 1858, the city was in the middle of yet another celebration in City Hall Park, this time to celebrate the first transatlantic cable that had been laid between Europe and the United States. Oh, exciting. Cyrus Field. Right. The telegraph transmissions could now go from London through Newfoundland to the States in about 10 hours when it used to take. 12 days to make the trip by ship. So naturally, New York wants to celebrate this momentous event of the Queen sending the President of the United States a telegraph. So everybody gathers on August 17th. The city illuminates City Hall, which would be a spectacle unto itself at night, I suppose, with torches and such. Yeah, I was about to ask how. And then shot off a bunch of old school fireworks. You mean like from City Hall? Like around? Around, all around City Hall. In the city. Greg, they were excited. (laughs) They were excited. City Hall was lit up. It was night. There were thousands of revelers. And fireworks were shooting over City Hall. And sparks were landing on the wooden clock tower atop the dome atop City Hall. And it started a fire that caught the entire tower on fire. Even worse, however, is that the fire bell, the fire alarm was on top of the cupola as well, on top of the dome. So they oh. couldn't even get the signal out to the firemen to, to rush to the scene of the, of the fire. That was not really far thinking on their part. But apparently, I guess, it, they did pick up the pieces. They did rebuild, correct? Not only did they rebuild, but two weeks later, they held another proper celebration. <laughs> <laughs> and they set, they set off fireworks over In the city same- hall again <laughs> this time though it didn't have a cupola <laughs> wait but there wasn't another fire was there no it's just it had burned <laughs> down there was no cupola so they couldn't catch it on so fire. it was illuminating these charred remains dramatic isn't it side note greg unfortunately on september 18th two weeks after that celebration and after 271 transatlantic telegrams had been sent telegraph engineer couldn't really hear the telegraph coming through he and he cranked up the voltage on the telegraph wire and blew out the entire cable and that was it for the cable that was it and another cable a better improved one would open in 1866 eight years later the, the cupola, however, was restored in 1860. <laughs> okay. But there were a lot of changes in New York at this time. I mean, things are developing rapidly, including, I assume, buildings around the neighborhood of City Hall Park. Well, a rather remarkable, at least to us today, development happened in 1867 uh, when the city sold off the southern tip of City Hall Park. Now imagine that. That's the area, that tip south of the fountain. Sure. Pretty much directly across from the Woolworth building. Uh Uh-huh. 
If you cut off the tip of that triangle, the city sold that off to the federal government who built the city hall post office and courthouse. Now, (laughs) is it just me or is it hard to imagine that in that space, an enormous post office was built? A a thick sort of gaudy building was at that corner. If you see pictures of that corner, go to our blog for some images of that. It is an unrecognizable corner. It's very strange. It's it was designed by Alfred Mullet. That's right. His name is Alfred, Alfred Mullet. Mullet. Right. It's sort of short on the top and long in the back. <laughs> yes. Yes. It actually housed the main New York City post office on the lower floors and courtrooms and government buildings on the higher floors. It was considered an eyesore at the time, and you say it's a, a monstrosity. It was called Mullet's Monstrosity. That was sort of its nickname. But, you know, it's sort of pretty. It was built in the Second Empire style. It had some flair, gabled roofs, and it used, interestingly, pneumatic tubes to zip mail from that post office to other post offices in New York City. Oh, exciting. Just like the bank. Yeah, except really long pneumatic tubes. And to make it even more of an eyesore, because of its unique location and the tip of that triangle, the the mail trucks, as they were pulling up, couldn't pull up on the Broadway side of it or, or Park Row side. They had to go into the park. So not only did it cut off the park, but there was chaos and mail carriages on the park side. So it just was not a, really a proper... Elaborate traffic disaster. And it would remain that way until 1939. Now that's to the south of City Hall. Something, of course, was built to the north of City Hall. Most notoriously, I believe you would be talking about the Tweed Courthouse. Yes. Uh, one of the most costly civic buildings ever built in history. Right. Home to the $600 chairs, right? <laughs> Thanks to the graft and corruption of of boss tweed and his cronies which we cover in the boss tweed podcast for more information city government has expanded to such a degree that it's almost paralleling the situation that they had before when back when they were down on wall street they're just there were too many government workers they couldn't fit in city hall anymore um they were just way too cramped they were running buildings throughout the city and then what's happening 1898 consolidation of new york so that's like boom that's even more offices and serious crisis at first they decide well you know what what we'll do is we'll just build connectors between city hall and tweet courthouse and that'll just be one gigantic building they didn't like that then they decided you know what we're just going to destroy city hall we're going to knock it down entirely they even had competitions for designs for a brand new city hall. This old one was just seen as outdated and too small. However, a lot of people actually fought for the old city hall, for it to remain, and people including Andrew Green, of course, was, a city, was the parks commissioner. Um, he protested. And in fact, the state legislature actually overrode the city and said, well, you know what? You can't destroy it. Sorry. You've got to ex- just expand to another building. So and That's back when the state legislature did something. Yes, cracking that whip. So that's why we have that gigantic, monumental, gilded age structure that's 
right to the northeast of City Hall, the Manhattan Municipal Building. It was completed in 1913 and built by McKim, Mead, and White. So they moved a lot of city offices into that building. So that really relieved a lot of the pressure. So the old City Hall, they decided, well, since we have to keep it, let's give it an elaborate renovation. And that renovation started in 1909. And who do we have to thank for this particular element of City Hall history? A man by the name of Grovesner Atterbury. Ah, Grovesner. Grovesner Atterbury. I I love that someone in the world out there can say, Hello, I'm Grovesner Atterbury. (laughs) Um, He was a very innovative architect and home designer. What he did is he followed the original sketches of John McComb. And... He started with one room. They all loved it so much that they decided, you know what, just do the whole place. He ended up working from 1909 to 1916, just continuing to do all these renovations, modernized and fireproofed it, which is very convenient because in May of 1917, there was another fire of course. here at City Hall. It started on top of the roof. It was a burning charcoal. You know, men were working up there. That cupola burned again, destroyed again. And the funny... It's a cursed cupola. There's a f- and the funny anecdote is Atterbury is actually in the vicinity of City Hall, sees the flame, and then like runs through the streets, flailing his arms, just going, the City Hall is on fire! Sound an alarm! You know, I mean, horrified, because he was renovating the whole building. It was on fire. What so happened? They, they quelled the, the fire. They, they put up the cupola. And so... He actually got to redesign it, and he changed it a little bit. But it's a little different than the one that was originally designed. But he's imp- I, th- I would say that he's improved City Hall. Atterbury. Well done, sir. By this time, City Hall and City Hall Park have taken on this sort of unique place in New Yorkers' hearts. One book that I read said that City Hall has now become priceless. It's sort of a, a product of one of these very first movements of preservation. It's a centerpiece of New York City pride. Nowhere does that become more evident than in 1939 when the post office yes. relievedly gets pulled down and they want to do n- new things here with City Hall Return Park. Return to sender. <laughs> well, and for that sender in this particular case is one Robert Moses, you know, newly newly hired Robert Moses under the administration of Fiorella LaGuardia. He has some grand designs, I'm sure, something involving concrete and playgrounds. I exaggerate, but... And parking, probably. His, his, the plans that he had were violently opposed by many people in New York and by the community, and eventually they didn't pan out. And so it ended up being a regular, beautiful old park. In 1966, as a matter of fact, the City Hall building would actually become a city landmark, not just a city landmark, Tom, sorry, not just a city landmark, but a national landmark. And a city landmark. And as well as, yes. Can you just give us like a very quick tour of of some of the major rooms here inside City Hall? Well, it would be kind of weird to talk about the history of City Hall without going inside, right? Well, let's go inside for a little bit. Let's do go inside. So... And I should just note that if you'd like to take a tour, you can take a tour. Call 311 in New York City, and you'll find out when they're giving tours. I called today. I found out they're giving a free one tomorrow without reservations. You just show up and get a little ticket. It is open to the public, and it's a great opportunity because you can't just show up and take a tour on your own. There's security. Lots of security, actually. Yes. So we're starting with those famous steps, right, going the, up the steps. And the steps, the grand steps leading up to that porch area that you were talking about under a, a grand balcony, which juts out 
before five giant French windows. Now, that's a popular spot for hanging out, for gatherings, demonstrations, for celebrations, proclamations. Posing. Posing. Speeches. Inside, you enter into a lobby that features a bronze statue of George Washington by James Hubbard. Uh, It's an 1857 copy of a 1788 statue that stands in the Virginia State Legislature in Richmond. Hmm. Now enter further into the rotunda. This is really the central point of City Hall. The rotunda is very elegant, marble floor. And they have these two wrapping staircases around it, Right, it's a double floating staircase. You enter at the base, and it wraps up on either side up to a second-floor balcony where there are ten columns that jut up and support a dome at the top, which is then crowned with that cupola that we were talking about, and the little figure of justice. Sounds like it would would fit quite at home in Washington, D.C., almost, at least from the interior. Totally. Federal style. In 1996, actually, the dome was restored. They peeled back 18 layers of paint. (laughs) Can you imagine? Maybe they overdid it. And found the original painting. Now, other notable rooms, just very briefly here. Sorry, this doesn't really do justice to City Hall, but the governor's room is traditionally the reception room. Lincoln actually stopped here on his way to be inaugurated to receive New Yorkers. And I believe that, in fact, Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant were both laid in state here when they died, correct? Lincoln was laid right in front of the governor's room. Mm -hmm. It's also a picture gallery housing many, many portraits and sculpted busts of important New Yorkers. Notably, inside the room, there's a portrait of George Washington with his horse by John Trumbull from 1790, and also George Washington's desk, which he used as president at Federal Hall from 1789 to 1790. It's still there. It's almost like a museum inside, isn't it? Yeah, the governor's room is like a small museum. Actually, throughout City Hall, there are so many works of art. There are so many sculptures and busts. You feel as if you are in a museum. This is what makes a tour worthwhile, I'm assuming. The blue room on the first floor has has traditionally been used as this sort of reception room for the mayor. And the mayor has usually had a smaller room off to the side. In fact, Bloomberg does have a small little room to the side that he uses for official meetings and, Mm -hmm. and such. And this custom was established in 1812 by Mayor DeWitt. Clinton. However, did you know that when Mayor LaGuardia was in charge, he took over the entire room, the whole reception room. He wanted it to be his own private room. Well, I guess who's going to tell him no? Of course, City Hall is also home to the council chamber. The 51 members of City Council represent every neighborhood of New York, and they meet in the chamber twice a month for full council meetings, and then also obviously meet for smaller meetings. It was added in 1897, like you said, as the city was consolidating, they were looking for a place to meet. So they took two courtrooms that were in City Hall, they combined them together, and made this great chamber room. There's a public hearing chamber, which is a large room used for various public sessions. That has been renamed under Bloomberg's term as the bullpen. And that is actually where Bloomberg has his day-to-day offices. It's very similar to a Wall Street trading floor, not surprising, being Bloomberg. As it used to be a space to hold public sessions and for speakers and such, there's still a little elevated stage. That's now where you can get your coffee. You can walk (laughs) up and sort of see that. And then everybody else is in cubicles down below and Bloomberg is in the center of it. He calls it his command center. He sits amongst his deputy mayors, his chiefs of staff. Everybody has the same amount of space in their cubicles as the mayor. Nobody has more. Well, this was, of course, a recent change to City Hall. I should mention here, by the way, so this in 1999, there was a, a huge renovation of City Hall Park. In fact, it was 34 
$5.6 million. Wow. Completely redone. Then, in fact, that fountain that's there, that glorious, beautiful fountain, which is called the Jacob Bray Mold Fountain for the designer, it had been there in 1871, is when it had been placed there, had been removed and then brought back. So it's original glory here, and it has those little gas lights around it. Oh, yeah. It looks I mean, great. It's very gaslight New York, isn't it? During the renovation, I should mention, um, while they were digging up ground and moving things around, they actually found 70 bodies here at, at City Hall Park. And those weren't just left over from the gallows? They could be almhouse bodies. They could be from the Revolutionary War. Some pe- some even say it might have been spillover from the African burial ground, which is, of course, just north right. of this area as well. So, so literally, there might be ghosts floating around here. And finally, you will notice that there's a lot of security here at City Hall. Not surprising in post-9-11 New York City that there would be a lot of su- a lot of security, but there is a very specific reason. In 2003, on the steps of City Hall, one city council member actually shot and killed another city council member right here. Um, Which is really that, unthinkable, that, isn't it? That, that if you think about New York history and all the times when this could have happened, you certainly wouldn't have thought it would have happened in 2003. Who Doesn't, was it? It was a man by the name of James Davis who was shot and killed by a political rival on the city council. Because of that, everyone, including Michael Bloomberg, has to go through a security check on their way in every morning. So, And maybe you'll have to go through with that, but it will be well worth it on your tour. So hopefully we have provided enough of a tour, virtually, of New York City Hall and City Hall Park. So thank you for joining us as we leapt through 400 years of city history. Now, Greg, you did have some little announcement you wanted to make. Well, I want to thank everybody out there who voted for us for the nominations for the 2009 Podcast Awards. We actually are nominated. I will put some information on the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Lots of pictures from this podcast and also some information about, if you like what we do, to vote for us in the official contest, which starts on Friday. so, So now we're in the running for... Best Travel Podcast. Best Travel Podcast is our category. And correct. how would we win? Are there judges or is it just a people's it's, choice? I believe it's a people's choice. I'll have all that information on the blog to let everybody know. But the voting, I believe it's two weeks worth of voting. So so the voting takes place in November 2009. There'll be a solo show in a couple weeks. So thanks. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.